I see a number of my brothers uh, out here who are priests, and uh, I don't know how they think, but uh, I don't give talks. Uh, I just don't think that's what I'm supposed to do as a priest. Uh, I think I'm supposed to listen to what the Lord wants to say and then to, to give that word. So in praying about tonight, uh, we feel like the Lord's given us a, a word to share, and that's what it is that I want to share with us tonight. And I pray in a particular way that it'll be a word of hope and uh, an encouragement, especially for those of us, not that anybody living in this country right now is in need of hope, uh, but some of us might be in need of a little bit. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for gathering us together here tonight. We thank you for every gift that we have, for life, faith, friendship, family, being alive at this time in this country. Father, I just pray that you would be gracious to us right now and unleash your Holy Spirit upon each and every one of us. Pray that you would help me to say those things that you desire me to say and that you would enable us to hear those things that we are most in need of hearing, whether they come from my mouth or from your spirit. We pray especially for those of us who are here tonight who find ourselves in the middle of storms. We just ask for ears to be attentive to what it is you wish to say and to catapult us out from this place as missionaries of hope in a culture which is desperately in need of it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I want to, I want to entitle this um, Writing Out the Storm. And I just want to say a quick word about this icon. Anybody familiar with this icon? It's, uh, it's going to be familiar to some of us, especially who... Uh, maybe wear collars, but this, this is a favorite icon in the Eastern Church. It's known as the Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And you'll notice that at the center of the icon, we, icons are, are not pictures, they're not paintings, they're, they're actually like sacraments. They're supposed to be doors into the mystery that they depict. And at the center of this icon, this is the liberation of hell, is the Lord standing with his cross, under his feet is Satan, whom he has triumphed over. And he's grabbing um, Adam and Eve in a particular way and pulling them out of hell. The reason I want to offer this at the beginning is because this is where some of us in here right now are. Not in hell, but in darkness. In sadness, in discouragement, maybe worse. Certainly some of the people that we know in our families and amongst our friends, our co-workers are. And the Lord, if that's you right now, and, and we're all, I mean, you know, we're all really good at putting on facades. How you doing? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> Do you really want to know? And for those of us who wish we could drop the facade right now, the Lord sees us where we are with all that's going on, with all that's on our minds, with all that's on our hearts. And for some of us right now, his desire is just to, to grab our hands and to bring them out. This is going to be the image I want to hold up in front of us uh, this evening, just this raging storm. Because it is rough out there right now. It's rough in the culture. Uh, it's rough in the state where I'm from, I know there's a couple of us from Michigan, I beg you to keep praying for what's going on in the state of Michigan. We have a demonic proposal on the ballot next week, which is actually not even on the ballot. 30% of the proposal is on the ballot. It would make Michigan uh, on par with North Korea and China with regards to abortion rights. 
two months ago, we would have said this thing is going to pass with flying colors. Right now, it's neck and neck, and we have a real chance for this to be defeated. So please pray like crazy that this will happen. But it's not just rough out there. It's rough in, in here, too. And in here, I mean the church. Uh, it, it's, it's a hard go, oftentimes. We've seen crisis after crisis, scandal after scandal, and um, Mary and Julie are up here at the table, uh, two of our missionaries on our team in Acts 29, and we often say about our work, you know, if the church has one desperate need right now, we need to learn how to be human again. We are often very transactional and very functional. You call me father, but fathers know their children and children know their fathers. Priests don't know their children. There's too many of them. And they don't know us, or at least few of them know us. And so the relationship becomes much more business-oriented than it is familiar, and that has a, a grind on, on lots of us on both sides of this. So the, the waters are, are choppy, <laughs> to be sure. We describe ourselves in, in Acts 29 as missionaries of hope. There are a boatloads of needs in the church right now, but hope is a desperate one, we would say. It's a particularly urgent one. Not optimism. I'm not optimistic. I'm, I'm kind of Eeyore by temperament. It was a beautiful day today. It's going to snow tomorrow probably. You know? <laughs> and a priest friend of mine always says, like, it's going to get worse before it gets worse. <laughs> and I think he's probably right. Unless we get a Marian apparition, I think it's going to be really hard to be a Christian in this country really soon. So we're not missionaries of optimism, but we are missionaries of hope. And, you know, St. Paul says to his friend Timothy, a passage which is probably very familiar to some of us, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. And, and that word that he uses there, the, the Greek we could translate, it's almost a medical term. It's very appropriate for the Knights of Malta. It, it, the idea is something is lame that needs to get set. It's like you broke your arm and you've got you to set it so that it can get well again. And there's something in many of us in the church as disciples of Jesus which is bent and the Lord wants to bend it back. He wants to, if you will, he wants to give us our sea legs. And so if nothing else, what, what I want to do tonight is just kind of walk us through almost like a Lexio Divina on five key texts to just let God's word like reach deep into us right now so that in the midst of whatever storms you're going through or I'm going through, we can realize that we have no reason to be afraid right now because God is not nervous right now. And so I don't need to be nervous right now. So the five texts are John 12.32, Philippians 4.6, Luke 11, 22, Colossians 2, 15, and Hebrews 6, 19, and 20. So first, John 12. Jesus says, when, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will, I will pull, uh, I will draw like a magnet all people to myself. That's the simple desire that we have tonight in being with you. We just want to lift Jesus up and let him pull us to himself. Again, aware of the fact that so many of us are going through difficult times right now. There is an urgent, desperate need for, I would suggest, all of us in the church, let alone outside the church, to, to more fully understand who Jesus really is. If, if I were to ask you right now, how do you see him? Just take a moment for real as you're sitting here and think of one, two, three adjectives that you would use to describe Jesus as you sit there right now. Because the words that we usually hear people describe him as are kind, and he is, to be sure, Gentle, compassionate, patient, 
merciful. He's all those things, but those don't necessarily inspire a tremendous amount of hope when things are falling apart, at least for some of us. But is that all he is? Or is there more to him than that? Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. Let's, let's move to, to Paul's exhortation. This is a command. <laughs> it's a command. Do not be anxious at all about anything. How you doing with that? <laughs> Pass the test? Ours is a, a culture right now which is riddled with despair. Some of you who might have been, uh, when we were with you down at the, uh, at the Expo Center in June, we, we talked a little bit about this. There's a, a, a tremendous article which was written a little bit more than three years ago right now by Mitch Album, uh, syndicated columnist out of Detroit. This is the title, Why is Living Shorter, Dying Sooner, a New Trend? If you work in the medical profession, especially if you work in metal, uh, mental health, you know this to be the case. Um, sociologists call them deaths of despair. And in 2018, it was the first time in over 100 years that life expectancy in our country declined for a third consecutive year. The last time that happened was the end of World War I and the outbreak of the Spanish flu. And COVID was real. I had it, and then I got pneumonia, and I was really sick. I lost one of my best friends to it. We've all been affected by it, but it did not touch the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu killed 50 million people. We're dying right now because we're losing the will to live. Life expectancy in our country is going down because of suicide, most especially. Suicide's the second leading cause of death between children ages 10 to 14 in our country. That's astounding. Astoundingly disturbing. We're 5% of the world's population. We consume 80% of the world's opioids. We're literally killing ourselves. We don't have a war. We don't have a pandemic like that. The root of this, we believe, is most people just simply have never encountered God. As God gets pushed off the stage, the creature that's made in his image and his likeness loses any real sense of meaning. And so one of the most urgent tasks that we have as disciples of Jesus is to proclaim the gospel to people. That's why it's so important to defend the faith. Pope John Paul said in a letter that he wrote back in the 80s that the proclamation of the gospel is supposed to have the effect of overwhelming a person and leading them eventually to surrender their entire lives to Jesus and faith. Imagine standing up, not where you celebrate Mass on Sunday, but somebody else's church, and you just say, you know, like, quick show of hands. I want to ask two questions. How many people here have made a decision to surrender everything to Jesus and faith? Picture the parish you go to this weekend. How many hands do you think would go up? Five? Ten? Everything. My time, my money, my body. Everything. And, and we think that's simply because most people have never really heard the gospel. And I think the reason for that is simply because we have a really dangerous thing in the church with the lectionary. Not dangerous so much that we need to go rogue. That's not my point. But the lectionary presupposes you know the Bible, right? The number one podcast in the country last year was what? Bible in a Year. Yeah. That's both really exciting and really sobering. It means like that's what most people wanted to hear because they didn't know it. And those are the people who come to church on Sunday. And then you get the lectionary and Father stands up and he's got like, okay, I got... Second Kings, I got Philippians 4, and I've got this passage from Luke, and I got 10 minutes. And the people are sitting in the pews going like, I have no idea how these things connect together. Just don't be too long and make it kind of funny. And that's not what the gospel is supposed to be. So we have this urgent task to, to proclaim the gospel. That's why there's so much anxiety, and there's so much despair, and there's so much discouragement. But it's not just out there. It's also in here or in her. What might you and I be anxious about right now? 
the election next week? State of the church? Wondering how long you're going to have Bishop Fernandez? <laughs> <laughs> Might not be long. We want him. <laughs> Our guy's leaving in a year. <laughs> Something in your family? A loved one who's stopped going to church? A child who's sick? A spouse who's sick? Fear about your past? It's easy to feel like the waves are just washing up over us. But, but our, our hope shouldn't be in the country and our leaders. It shouldn't be in the church's leaders. It shouldn't be in my health. My hope should only be in God. I, I, I personally found that COVID was a, an opportunity for, for God to do something like a level set in many of us. He just, I think he just exposed a lot of idols in many of us. I, I used to hear the word idol and I would think like, good grief, like we're 21st century Americans, you know, like I don't have any idols. What's an idol? Well, this is an idol. An idol is anything in your life that's more important to you than God. Anything that you look to to give you what only God can give you. Anything that should you lose it, life would feel not worth living. That's an idol. Ugh. I don't know about you, that, that hits. Anything or anyone more important to you than God. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive and, and, and find out how it is that Paul can say what he says and command what he commands. So I want to try to join these next two scriptures together. This is a, a very enigmatic passage. It's in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. It, it's, if in a certain sense, it's a summary of the whole gospel. This is words of Jesus after he drives out a demon and the Pharisees begin to accuse him of doing this by the prince of demons. And Jesus goes on to tell this parable. He says, when a strong man, or actually when the strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace or safe. Who's the strong man? Class, who's the strong man? Satan. This is what we call the bad news. We don't talk about the bad news very often. We need to talk about the bad news. It's one of the reasons why the people don't experience the good news as good news, because we don't talk about the bad news, and the bad news is horrific. When the strong man fully armed guards his own palace, what's his palace? This world. What are his goods? Yeah, you and me. But there's good news. <laughs> and the good news is when one stronger than he attacks him, assails him, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. Who's the stronger one? Jesus. What's he do? He attacks Satan. This is why he came, to liberate those of us who are held bound by him. I want, I want to break that down, but before I break it down, I want to move to this next passage from Paul, just because this will help put more flesh on it. Paul in Colossians says that he disarmed, or, or more literally, he stripped naked the rulers and the authorities. The rulers and the authorities are death, sin, Satan, hell. Those are the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame, or we could translate that Greek word as he just absolutely, utterly disgraced them by triumphing over them in him or in his cross. And, you know, you hear the word triumph, I hear the word triumph, and I think parade. You know, when Paul says the word triumph, this is what Paul thinks of. 
This is a triumph. Triumphs were very particular military parades, which were at a certain point only held uh, for a victory of the Roman emperor after a major victory. And he would come into Rome riding in his chariot. And behind him would be all those that he's captured. Julius Caesar, after eight years of battle with the king of Gaul up in France, defeats the king finally. And he begins a parade back down into Rome. And he finally gets into Rome. And he comes in just like this, seated on his chariot. And at the end of the line is this man, the king of Gaul. Except he would have been naked. Chained to that pole. With a sign over his head. Saying, this man's been defeated and he will not hurt you anymore. And I conquered him. That's what Paul says Jesus has done to Satan. That's not the image that many of us have of Jesus. But this is Jesus, people. This is the real Jesus. Yes, he's kind. Blessed be he. <laughs> but he's not just kind. Jesus is the one through whom the universe was made. And in case you haven't checked the news lately, the universe is 90 plus billion light years across. That's 90 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. That's 522 sextillion miles across. That's 522 and 22 zeros after it. And it was made through him and for him. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who has defeated sin. It's no match for him. He's canceled it. God has a cancel culture. Blessed be he, he has a cancel culture. Except he doesn't cancel people. He cancels sin. That's really good news for everybody in this room. That's really good news. Just think for yourself, like, the most humiliating moment of Peter's life is what? Yeah, his denial. How do we know about his denial? It's in the Bible. Who, who, who told the authors of the Gospels that it happened? He did. He didn't run from it. He just said, yeah, you, you probably want to put this piece in. Yeah, this was the worst night of my life. Absolutely, utterly humiliating. I'm totally ashamed of it. But he forgave it. And it doesn't define me anymore. And so I'll talk about it all night long because that's what Jesus did for me. He forgave that. There's some of us in this room, we need to know that, that that's true. That you're not defined by your past. That God doesn't define you by what you've done. He defines you as his son or his daughter who might have happened to do a whole set of things, but that's not who you are. Who you are is his beloved. Sin is no match for Jesus. Death is no match for Jesus. We just honored a whole set of folks who served heroically during COVID, and we lost a lot of people during COVID. And we've got a country which is still in many parts of uh, this land petrified of dying. There are people in this room right now who are terrified of dying. People, Jesus has abolished death. He's canceled it. He's declared it null. If, if Proposal 3 passes in the state of Michigan, 41 laws will be invalidated. Jesus invalidated the law of death. It's powerless. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to you. Can't hold me. I don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. That's who Jesus is. Satan is no match for him. He's bound him. There's no contest between Jesus and Satan. Satan's rival is not Jesus. Satan's rival is Michael. That's why we pray the prayer to St. Michael. Satan cowers in fear at the name of Jesus. He's not just kind. There is no match for Jesus. This is the one who's created us to be alive at this moment in history. This is the one who's sending us out on mission into the world and into the country and into the city in which we live. This is the one who's reminding us that we have no reason right now to be anxious or to be afraid. Jesus has no rival, period. 
we used to think Ohio State was unconquerable. <laughs> we don't anymore. I miss John Cooper. I know, three weeks. It's going to be br I think it's going to be brutal in three weeks. <laughs> but we, we lift up athletes all the time. The greatest athlete of all time is him. And there's not a close second. Where's his worship that he deserves? Where's the adulation that he deserves? Some of us will talk all day long about college football and we'll never open our mouths about him. People, that's a game, which I love greatly, but it's a game. He's Lord. And to say he's Lord is not the mere ending of a prayer. Jesus is absolutely and utterly unconquerable. The, the Lord in heaven right now who holds all authority in his hands, all kings, all governors, all presidents, all prime ministers, they're all in his hands, not will be in his hands. They are in his hands right now. He's not nervous. So whatever you're nervous about, he wants to shatter that. You just don't have to be. Because your life right now is in his hands. Your loved ones right now are in his hands. This country is in his hands. The church is in his hands. The next pope is in his hands. Your pastor is in his hands. Everything is in his hands. Let me share with you, if I can, a, a, a little excerpt from a, a, a tremendous little essay it's, it's called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with this. This is a gem of a book. It was published by the University of Mary a couple years ago. There's a second volume that's about to come out. But there's a, a little excerpt in here that I want to share because I think oftentimes, you know, we, we talk to people in the church and their, their sense is everything's just kind of like spinning out of control. Nothing's spinning out of control. Nothing. Absolutely nothing is spinning out of control. Yes, it might get hard, but it's not out of control. It's right here in his hands. And so in this book, he, the author says, uh, says, try to imagine the first evangelization committee meeting. How's this for an agenda? Bring the gospel to the world. Awesome. All right, let's sit down. Let's figure out what we got. Okay, resources, bishops. How many bishops do we have? We've got, let's see, we've got 11. All right. How about priests? we got the same number. Deacons. Uh, what's a deacon? Sorry, we don't know what those are yet. Trained theologians. Uh, no, we don't have any of those. Religious orders. Sorry, you don't exist yet. Not even the Knights of Malta. <laughs> Seminaries. No, we don't have any of those. Seminarians, of course not. Christian believers. we got a couple of hundred. Okay. Countries with Christians in them. Hmm. One. Church buildings. Uh, we don't have any of those. Schools. No. Written gospels. Not yet. Money. Pretty much none. Experience in missions. Zip. Influential contacts. Or contacts. Next to zip. Societal attitude toward us. Ignorant to hostile. <laughs> Listen to what they say. If the apostles had been thinking from the standpoint of the strength of existing Christian institutions, they would have been overwhelmed by discouragement, facing crises in every direction, vocational, financial, catechetical, educational, and numerical. This is often what we sound like in the church. We sound overwhelmed by discouragement. We're running out of priests. We're running out of money. We're running out of Students, we're not baptizing as many people. We're not doing Christian weddings. We're losing exponentially more people every year than are coming into the church. I come from the Archdiocese of Detroit. You know how many people we ordained last year? Zero. 1.2 million Catholics. We ordained nobody last year. 26 years ago when I was ordained, we had twice the number of priests that we have now. In five years, we'll have half the number of priests that we have now. In five years, we'll have 25% of the priests that we had when I was ordained. 
It, it often sounds in the church like we are managing decline. Last one out, turn out the lights. But they weren't discouraged. They were filled with joy and with hope. They had great confidence in their Lord, in their message, and in the creativity and the fertility of the church. They knew that their task was to be used by the Holy Spirit to grow the church, and they knew the graced means by which it was to grow, and did it grow. The church in an apostolic time, like ours, needs to have the same confidence in the power and the goodness of the message she bears, in its life-changing potency, in the church's power of regeneration and growth. In a particular way, those in positions of influence and authority, that would be us, need to be convinced that Christ is the answer to every human ill, the solution to every human problem, the only hope for a dying race. They need to be convinced of the bad news that the human race has, by its own rebellion, brought a curse upon itself and has sold itself into slavery to the prince of darkness, and there is nothing we can do under our own power to save ourselves. But we need to be equally convinced of the good news that God in his mercy has come among us to set us free from our sins and from slavery to the devil, and that for those who turn to their true allegiance, the nightmare of life apart from God can be transformed into a dawn of eternal hope. They need to know from their own experience that obedience to the gospel is perfect freedom, that holiness leads to happiness, that a world without God is a desolate wasteland, and that new life in Christ transforms darkness into light. Is that your attitude? For real. Is it mine? Do we live that way? Do we talk that way? Do we sound that way? Do we think that way? Do we pray that way? Would you like it to be? Would you like to have the attitude of the apostles? One of, one of the reasons why we think the rescue project, which I know has been running in a number of parishes and uh, the Diocese of Columbus, and it was why we were so excited to bring uh, Rescue Live down here in June, is because we think this is something that's God, that God's given to us to give away we got cards on your tables that are, I think on the back of those is a QR code, isn't there? So how, how many people are in a parish that's running the rescue project right now? Some of us, yeah, great, praise the Lord. This is just a little, nine. it's an eight-week, nine-video experience that we created. And on that QR code on the back of your card, is uh, it'll just take you right to the website. It's rescueproject.us. We, we passionately believe that the single most urgent task in the church is a compelling proclamation of the gospel. And so we just created this and we're giving it away. Everything that's on that website is free. Everything that we do in our work is free. When we come to hear the gospel, when we, when we are moved to surrender ourselves to Jesus in faith, when we come to know that the gospel isn't news, that it's explosive, extraordinary, life-changing news, then suddenly you and I are filled with hope. And we have a sense that no matter what's going on all around us, I'm immovable because I'm united to him. And he has no rival. That's what Hebrews is talking about. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's what hope is. Hope is an anchor. How do anchors work? They lodge into something solid. That's what hope is. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a necessarily Christian virtue. Those who are not believers in Jesus have no hope. There is no hope apart from him because no one else has conquered death. Hope lodges into the foot of the cross. That's where our hope is rooted. God's done something about the human situation, and he's done it out of love not for y'all, for you. 
and for you and for you and for me by name. Because God's not angry at you. God's passionately in love with you. So much so that he didn't just make you, but he became a man so as to rescue you. This hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on as a forerunner on our behalf. No matter how turbulent the waves of the culture, no matter how turbulent the waves of the church, no matter how turbulent the waves in your own personal life, no matter how turbulent the waves in the loved one's lives, you don't move. You don't, you don't just go back and forth like a boat without an anchor if you have faith in Jesus. Which leads me to this last text that I just want to linger on with you. This is the word. Some of you might remember this passage in the Gospels. Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat and to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. How many people have been to Jerusalem and to Galilee? Yeah, so if you've, if you've never pictured or been to uh, the Holy Land, the Sea of Galilee is roughly 13 miles by 7 miles. It's a pretty good-sized lake. It's known especially for storms that come out of nowhere. So Jesus tells them, Let's go to the other side, as if he doesn't know what's about to happen. And suddenly there arose a great storm on the sea, and the Greek word that Matthew uses here is the, works, the word seismos, <laughs> seismograph. Now, this is an earthquake. This is not like, you know, a two-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee. A massive, colossal storm comes so that the boat was being swamped. The Greek gives the imagery of like the boat is being baptized by the waves. And the Lord's asleep. I don't know if you make it a point to, to walk outside during storms. I love storms. I find them fascinating to, to watch, to listen to. Not to fly in, but to watch and to listen to. Storms are loud, right? I mean, really loud. You get 50-mile-an-hour winds, and you get thunder and lightning, and it's hard to see, and it's certainly hard to hear, and you can't have a conversation in this tone of voice, right? So you have to, you've got to ask the Lord, Lord, help me to get into this scene, to use my imagination to picture this. So imagine being in a boat in the middle of a sea where you can't see the shore, and you do this for a living. You live on a boat. Like you work, at, this isn't me out on a lake, you know, in a, in a houseboat going like, wow, this looks kind of bad. These are guys who live on the water. And it's loud as all get out. Waves are covering them. Lightning's lighting up the skies. You can hear the oars crashing back and forth. The boat is going like this, right? And the Lord's asleep. And in Greek, it's three words. This is how we read it usually when we come to Mass. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are ruined. <laughs> Do you really think that's how they said this? I mean, pardon me, um, we're about to die. Could you do something? It's three words, Lord, save, lost. Lord, save, we're lost. Some of us have uttered those words to Jesus years ago, and some of us might be uttering those words to him right now. Lord, I'm lost. I don't see any way out. And here's how I picture this scene. I picture, you know, it's a pretty good-sized boat. If you ever see, if you go to the Holy Land, you can see kind of the replicas of the, of the boats that they had. So, you know, the, the boats maybe from here to, like, somewhere over here, right? And so I, I picture this, and Peter's up front, because he's, he's Peter, right? So he's in the front of the boat. And John's in the back next to Jesus, because he's John. That's his favorite. I know that. <laughs> so he's sitting next to Jesus, and he's just kind of, like, leaning up against him. And at a certain point, as they realize this is getting really bad, 
John wakes Jesus up, and you know, if you've ever tried to talk to somebody in the middle of the storm, this must have been the tone of voice he used. We're about to die! And I picture Peter's up front, and he's watching this happen, and he sees Jesus and John have a conversation, and so he's like, tell him to do something, and John's back here, and he's like, Lord, save, lost, and Jesus in the middle of the storm, not before he calms the storm, in the middle of the storm, you know, kind of like wakes up, rubs his eyes, and goes, what's the problem? And so I picture he, Peter's up here, he sees Jesus and John having this little conversation, but he can't hear it because it's too loud, right? With all the wind and whatnot. He goes, what did he say? And John's back here and he goes, he says he wants to know what the problem is. And Peter's up here going, you gotta be kidding me. What's the storm in your life right now? because we all got them. And just like he said to them, so tonight he says to you and me. Might be about our own health, might be about getting older, might be about one of our children, one of our grandchildren, work, finances. In the middle of the storm, Jesus says these words to you and me. What's the problem? Don't you know who I am? Don't you get it yet? Not as a chastisement. Just a penetrating question. Don't you know that I'm Lord even if I don't calm this storm? Isn't it enough for me to be with you in the boat? Or do you only know the kind of peace that comes from no storms? He promised us, not as the world gives do I give peace. How does the world give peace? The only kind of peace the world knows is the elimination of conflict. Good luck with that. Jesus' peace comes in the middle of conflict. In the middle of a terminal diagnosis, in the middle of a business falling apart, in the middle of discouraging news, in the middle of election results that don't go the way we might want them, in the middle of whatever hardships are going on in your life. And in my life, Jesus just looks at us and by name speaks to us, why are you afraid? I have no rival, and I'm with you in the boat. And my grace is sufficient for all things, not for some things, not for most things, for all things. We were in Florida a couple weeks ago, and we're staying at a retreat house leading a set of the folks on retreat, and this happened to be the, the, uh, the back of this massive crucifix that we saw. And I find this particular image to be uh, just a striking image to pray with and to ponder and to meditate on. I love the fact that Jesus is facing the storm. Whatever yours is and whatever mine is, Jesus is facing it, single-handedly facing it. And as he's there looking at it, he's at the same time saying to you and to me, you don't have anything to be afraid of. I hold your life firmly in my hands and all those that you love. It's one thing for us to hear this. It's another thing for the Holy Spirit to implant it within us. So let's just take a moment right now and 
I want to pray, and we'll just ask the Lord to do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, you know everything. You have access to all the waves that are going on inside us, all the turbulence, all the things that threaten to make us angry or discouraged or afraid. Father, I pray that even now, by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to see your Son as he really is, the unconquerable one, the Lord of heaven and earth right now, who's done something about sin, who's done something about death, who's bound the strong men, who speaks to us by name tonight, who says to us, even though you walk through the dark valley, you do not need to be afraid, for I am at your side. In fact, I've already gone ahead of you, and I'm behind you too. You are never alone, ever. Father, for some of us, the waves are violent right now. The wind is beginning to pick up. We just ask that you would remind us as we go home tonight that the Lord is in the boat with us. And because he is, no matter how violent the seas get, no matter what the news is, it's enough. He's enough. He is kind. And he is compassionate. But he is also Lord. And he knows us by name. And he loves us beyond all telling. So help us, Father, by the power of your Spirit to ride out whatever storms we're in right now with our eyes firmly fixed on him who has no rival. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, fathers agreed to take some questions, and I think there's some other announcements about the books and folders on the table. So, anybody have any questions? Good, great. <laughs> that was quick. Any questions on football? <laughs> no? Well. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. You're thinking of the four words? Well, if it hits, praise God, it's a, um, uh, I, mean, I, I, I do think we believe the Lord has given us uh, a way to share the gospel that's um, a bit different than certainly what I heard growing up, um, if for no other reason than it goes hard after the enemy and it lifts up this kind of muscular vision of Jesus. Um, it's the fruit of a lot of prayer and a lot of um, reading, especially the early church. And, and it's, uh, in many ways, it's the fruit of a, a very encouraging exhortation from Curtis Martin. 
So Curtis Martin is the founder of Focus, uh, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. They're here at OSU. And uh, early on, I was um, with him at some event, and I had shared something and asked him for his feedback afterwards, and he, um, he, he, he gave genuinely useful feedback. You know, like, useless feedback is, hey, great talk. Like, that's... What do you do with that? Like, you know, what was great about it? Or, hey, crappy homily. Like, that's useless too. Like, what was crappy about it? Um, but he, uh, he said something about how we had delivered it, and he, he, which he really appreciated. And then he looked at me and he says, but that's not repeatable. You've got to find a way to make that repeatable. No one's going to remember that. Or no one's going to be able to remember all that. And that's what led to the four questions and the four words. So we break the gospel into why is there something rather than nothing? Why is it all messed up? What, if anything, has God done about it? And how should I respond? Which we further break down into created, captured, rescued, and response. And behind each of those words is a lot of stuff, to be sure. Uh, but the four words are easy to remember, and that's, uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's due to Curtis. Does that help? So we launched it on August 20th. Um, rescueproject.us is where you can find it. It is right now in 46 states and 18 countries, and we haven't promoted it. Uh, so we're encouraged by that. Um, I, I actually think the single best audience for it is college kids. Uh, we did it down at LSU uh, in the fall. Um, it's running in Benedictine right now. It's running on a couple of seminaries. We'd love to see it happen. At, uh, it's running at U of M. I'd love to see it happen at OSU. Because um, college kids know where they are. Like, like, they're in the middle of some of the incredibly depressing statistics from the culture that, for, for some of us, are just numbers. For them, they're not numbers. They're people. They've lost friends to suicide. They've got friends who are strung out. Um, they see despair, and so it, it speaks quickly into darkness. It, I think it hits the pain point really quickly uh, for college kids, at least that's the feedback that we've gotten on it. So we love the fact that that age group in a particular way, not an exclusive way by any means, but in a particular way seems to resonate with it. So if anybody does any work at OSU or you do young adult ministry, uh, we think it's tailor-made for that age group. Yes? Yeah, how do we avoid being discouraged when we don't get the results that you want? Um, you know, I, I'm a huge student of history. Uh, I, I read a lot of history. I read a lot of World War II. Uh, I find it to be a very inspiring time. Um, I'm particularly uh, inspired by uh, people like Sophie Scholl or Maximilian Kolbe or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or some of these folks who just did unbelievable things in the middle of the world falling apart. And... Um, the devil's game is, is discouragement. That's what he wants to do, is to make us lose heart. Um, I, I think the encouragement that the Lord wants to give us is, first of all, well, what made you think that I promised you it would be any different? Like, I didn't promise you that until I came back again, everything would be easy. Um, I mean, the Lord says, I, I find the easiest way to battle discouragement is just to soak myself in Scripture. That, that's, that's back to that quote from Timothy, right? I mean, Scripture's useful for, uh, I have a, a mind that can easily get bent or distorted or discouraged, and so the way to re, you know, re replace that or to heal that is to let the Word of God speak to me. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble. He wasn't kidding about that. Like, in the world you're going to have trial, but be of good cheer. I conquered be of good cheer. Just hold on. It's so worth it. My, my, my parents and my brother died a couple years ago, and shortly after they died, uh, I remember, this is the month of November, you know, so we think about our, our beloved dead all the time and pray for them and do with this what you will, but I was talking to my dad, and I felt like he just said to me, oh, son, it's so worth it. Just hang on. Keep going. Like, don't cave. <laughs> It's so worth it. 
And I think, you know, God created us to be alive now. Uh, not, in an easy, not that there was an easier time in history. Every time has had its challenges. These are our challenges. And, and he's given every one of us in here gifts, and he's placed us in particular professions and spheres of influence so that we would do something about it to transform the culture. That's, that's the whole idea about the mission. I mean, the, the Rescue Project ends with a whole discussion on what is the mission. And by all means, holiness is really important, but holiness is not the mission. The mission is to continue the work that Jesus began on Easter Sunday. That's the mission. What's that? The transformation of this world which he loves. And it might cost me my life. Like, I keep waiting for somebody to show up at the rectory where I live and, like, shoot me. Because we're really outspoken against Proposal 3. And people know where I live. And I'm grateful to wake up every morning. But, like, so what? Like, the Lord wants to use us to inspire others, to be courageous, to step out, to stand up for uh, not only the Lord, but for our brothers and sisters who are in need. And so um, I, the Lord ha apparently has more confidence in us than we do. Like, I don't have any confidence in myself, but the Lord's like, hey, I've put you where you are right now for a reason. Like, do something with these gifts I've given you. And he said that to every single one of us. That's why we honored all these people just a moment ago. You know, you're doing something. You're helping to recreate this world, which the Lord loves. We can't honor you enough. Yeah, right there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and, and then the Lord can use us so as we can be, you know, wounded healers, as uh, Henry Nouwen used to say all the time. My, um, one of my first spiritual directors in the seminary, he always used to say, um, you know, there's three really important questions. The first is, where do you hurt? The second is, what do you want? And the third is, do you really want to be well? And to your question, I mean, I think that's one of the things that comes to mind. I mean, I would encourage us all. I think it's easy to feel um, we settle very quickly sometimes into a, a, almost like a complacent, like that, that question, do you really want to be well? Jesus asks to a man who's been sick for 38 years. You know, like, imagine having the gall to ask somebody that. Like, do you really want to be well? Like, excuse me. Like, do you know what I've been going through? But of course, Jesus does. You know, and it's a really annoying question. Because if I'm honest, I don't know. I really don't know if I want to be well. I like my wounds. If most of us are honest, we like our wounds. They're convenient excuses. It's justification for why I'm not a better man than I am. Well, you know, I, this happened to me, and you, know, you understand. Um, and I don't know another way of living. So, you know, again, this is really kind of humiliating, but we kind of befriend the very things that have caused us pain. It's like they've moved in. And for this not to be here anymore, like, I don't know how I would live without that. Yeah, I love the idea of being healed, but I can't picture life without that, whatever that is. And so we just kind of settle, because I know if to get from here to there is going to be a lot of work. And I don't know that I got the energy for all that work. And so if that's where some of us are, the, the great news is it's really not on you. Uh, Jesus is the divine physician. We just, we just got to bring him our wounds and then let him ask us that really disturbing question. Do you really want to be well? And then tell him, I don't know. Can you help? <laughs> And then just let him go to work within us. I, 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 you know, more practically, um, I would very highly recommend Bob Schutz's books, um, his podcast, Jake Kim's podcast, who does work with Bob, um, Unbound. You know, I see a number of my brother priests in here. Like, uh, we, we would always say in our work in the parish that the, the first thing we need to do is share the gospel, lead people into an encounter, but then we got to get people well. Because for most of us, the, the source of our sickness is actually bitterness, for most of us. That's the real wound. I'm just really angry at someone, and I haven't forgiven them. And the result of that is causing all sorts of problems in my life. And if I really want to be well, the first step is to acknowledge who are those people in my life that I'm just not willing to forgive yet, 
and to forgive them. And that, that will kill us. Because you can't, forgiveness isn't hard, it's impossible on our own. But we're not on our own. But that, that would be the first step. So some of those things, JP2, Unbound, would be really recommended. Who had never heard the prodigal son? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, well, that's what the rescue project's all about in the sense of, like, the chance to tell the, imagine what it's like to share the gospel with someone who's genuinely never heard it, because that's most of the people around us right now. They've never heard it. Like, in in this particular instance, it was a young woman who I was uh, flying to Washington, sitting next to, and just asked her what she was going to Washington for, and she said, well, I'm, I'm not going for anything. I'm running away from my dad. And, um, or I'm running back to my dad, excuse me, I haven't seen him in, you know, a set of years, and I said, oh, you're kind of like the prodigal son, except in your case, you're the prodigal daughter. And she looked at me like, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, you don't, you don't know the story of the prodigal son? She goes, no. I said, well, fasten your seatbelt, like, <laughs> you're in for a great ride right now. And I just shared the parable with her, and, and uh, much like it often happens when we just preach the gospel to people, she looked at me and more or less uh, said, why, why, why has no one ever told me that? Why, why am I just hearing that now? You know, I, I know some, um, some folks in the church, they think people have heard the gospel and moved on. I don't believe that. I don't think people have heard the gospel. Um, I just don't buy it. I don't know where they would have heard it. Where, where they've heard it. I mean, it's, it's so common to hear somebody say, well, I grew up Catholic, and then I, you know, I became a Christian at First Pres, you know, because I heard the gospel there, and I know exactly what they mean. I mean, you can't get Jesus more objectively than the Eucharist, but they didn't know that. And then they went down the street to, you know, some box church, and, and they got the gospel, and man, did they get overwhelmed, and they surrendered everything, and suddenly this person who used to give 10 bucks a week is tithing. You know, because they heard the gospel. And so we, we have these opportunities. I, I think one of the practical things, especially in these days, you got Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas and lots of parties. I mean, pray for opportunities, whether it's with family or with friends. Like, Lord, who do you want me to share the gospel with? Help me to be attentive to those in my field of vision who are crying right now. Help me to hear what's not being said. And who, who do you want me to talk to? And then give me an opportunity to talk to them about it. You know, someone says, hey, you, you look good. Like, it's, it, it's kind of bad out there. How are you doing? How, how, how are you looking so good? And rather than just go, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of lucky, I guess. <laughs> don't do that. Go, well, you want to know why I'm doing good? Yeah, I'd love to know. Well, it's actually because of my relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you a little bit about it? And I'm afraid most Catholics would be absolutely uncomfortable saying something like that. Meanwhile, they're dying. And those are the people who, when they encounter someone who shares the prodigal son or something else, they go, why has no one ever told this? I had this vision, I'll end with this, and I'll give it back to Lynn. I had this image years ago of, you know, you're standing in in line in heaven about to get judged, and there's all these people waiting to get judged. And they're friends and coworkers and family members that we've lived with, worked with, played with, played golf with, done whatever with. And they're about to stand in front of Jesus. And as they get closer and closer, they look at the Lord and then they look at you and me and they go, you knew about this and you didn't say anything? You were afraid to talk to me about this and you knew about this? Like, what were you afraid of? Please, God, no one will ever say that to you and me. You and I are privileged, whether you have a collar or not, actually you have more opportunities than those of us who have collars to do this, to be a herald of the king. Let's use it well. Say that again. When you say, say the same thing, I just want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of, so I, um, 
I don't celebrate the TLM, but I, I celebrate Mass in our chapel at Orientum. I find it to be actually a really powerful way to celebrate Mass. Um, I, I kind of learned it from be, living in Rome, where like you do that by de facto, because like that's where every altar is built into a wall. And I just, you know, I just got in the habit of saying to everybody, "I'm not turning my back on you. The only person becoming irrelevant right now is me." Like. We're just going to all look at Jesus, and like it's that simple of an explanation to, to me. Like you don't have to go into this big lofty um, treatise. Um, I know I have a lot of friends. One of our coworkers uh, splits his time, get a load of this between the traditional Latin Mass and a charismatic parish. <laughs> he calls himself a tradismatic, and um, <laughs> and it's great because it's it's a. I mean, the beauty of being Catholic, right, is. Um, all of these things are legitimate expressions. And however you find the Lord in that, I mean, we've got religious orders in this room, and we all got different charisms, you know? And none of them's the way. But they're all part of this deposit of faith which the Lord has given to us, and I think to deprive anybody of the opportunity um, to experience it is really dangerous. It, it, it means you're saying to them, well... Um, that's actually not legit. Or you're, you can go to the other side and go, this is the only way, you know, to celebrate Mass or to live as a disciple, and both of those are dangerous. Um, it's, it's very hard, I think, as a Catholic to really practice unity and diversity. We, we don't do well with diverse unity, if we're honest. Like, at least I don't. Like, I'm, I'm leery of those who are different. And... Um, the grounding of this is the Trinity, because the Trinity is three distinct persons. They're not the same. Uh, so we got to get comfortable with um, those things which are legitimate expressions and not look down on those who go to them or look down from that place on those who don't. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're finding the Lord there, because I know a lot of my brothers and sisters who've really been ministered de deeply to in the TLM. So praise God. And share, bring people to it. You know, invite folks, as I'm sure you are. And you're standing here grabbing this mic, so. Hey, two quick things. Um, Len asked me to bring a bunch of books, so there's a bunch of books. I'm not taking those things home, so just take them. Like, give them away. Use them as a paperweight. I don't really care. Um, and then we, for those of you who don't know anything about our work in X29, we just put together some, uh, some little folders with just little inserts which help you understand our work. We do four main things. We, do, we use media to try to bring inspiration and hope, especially to the church. We find... Media in general, and unfortunately Catholic media too, oftentimes, thanks be to God for St. Gabriel Radio, but oftentimes much of Catholic media is uh, just like the culture. It's really negative, and it stirs up fear, and it stirs up anger, so we, we use media. Mary and I do a podcast every week. So we do videos and other things. We do that. We do work with bishops and their leadership teams. We do priest retreats. We'll bring the priests of Columbus on retreat um, next year. Um, and then we created the Rescue Project. So those things will tell you just a little bit about our work. We would ask you to please hold us close in prayer. Trust me, the enemy hates our work and comes hard after us. So please pray for the Lord's protection on us and for courage and wisdom and all that we do and know that we have a, a real soft spot in our hearts for Columbus. We, we love coming down here. So thanks for your hospitality. Thank you.